Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, we are going to speak with Richard Signorelli, who is a law-talking guy, a former federal prosecutor um, with the uh, Southern District of New York. Uh, Richard is bullish on Trump and other senior people in his orbit being charged for his attempted coup d'etat eventually, uh, but is also frustrated that the Department of Justice is not moving more quickly and more aggressively. He'll tell us all about his, his views on all of this. Uh, then we will be joined by uh, Heather Parton, better known in some circles as the blogger Digby, a favorite of the show. And we'll uh, we'll talk about a bunch of stuff with her, including uh, the Build Back Better thing and, and various uh, problems we're having with uh, media coverage uh, of the Biden administration. It's been kind of frustrating. Uh, but first, we have a lot of news about January 6th and the events leading up to it that we are going to recap. Uh, we're going to recap some of the things we learned this week and over the past few weeks uh, with Richard Signorelli, but I just wanted to bring a civil case to your attention. So we're going to talk to Richard about criminal stuff. Um, D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine filed a federal lawsuit this week against the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers um, for terrorizing Washington, D.C. last January 6th. It cites the the modern version of an 1871 law known as the Ku Klux Klan Act. Well, this was enacted after the after the Civil War, if you'll remember. Um, they passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, while before readmitting some of the Southern states at the conclusion of the Civil War. The years following the Civil War, I think five years between. 65 and 70, 1865 and 1870, passed all these new uh, constitutional amendments, and immediately um, they re-established white supremacist rule in those southern states using a combination of uh, laws, the Jim Jim Crow system, and and terror, right? So... um, so you just passed all these constitutional amendments and uh, Republicans, which were then the more liberal party, were in charge. And they, they said, we're going to pass this law known as the Ku Klux Klan Act, which is going to enforce these, uh, these, these new constitutional amendments that we just passed in the previous years. So anyway, two similar lawsuits have been filed um, against against the perpetrators of the January January 6 riots. One was filed by some members of Congress. Another um, was filed by a, a, a bunch of, of cops who fought off the MAGA uh, insurrectionists. And I just want to point out that a similar legal tactic uh, led ultimately to a massive verdict last month uh, $26 million, uh, $26 million verdict last month against um, a bunch of very influential white supremacists uh, and hate groups, including Richard Spencer and others, for their role in the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. You will remember, of course, that's the one where Heather Heyer, a young activist, was killed. Uh, and Donald Trump said there were fine people on both sides. And I just, you know, I want to point out that there's like a pretty long tradition of suing hate groups into oblivion. Um, it's, you know, you you want to you want to see people charged for crimes, but this is a, another way of getting accountability. The Southern Poverty Law Center started doing this in. Oh, I don't know, the 1980s, I think um, they famously won a civil case against a group called the White Aryan Resistance and Tom Metzger uh, for $12 million in in the 80s. Um, The Metzgers declared bankruptcy, the family did, and the the group went kaput. Um, They won a $37 million verdict on behalf of a, uh, a black church in South Carolina against a couple of Ku Klux Klan chapters. And um, 
and, a, and individual Klansmen as well. That was in the 90s. In 2000, they won a $6.3 million judgment against the Aryan Nations. Um, and that was, uh, that, that caused the leader of the Aryan Nations had to, a guy named Richard Butler, scumbag, um, turned over the 20 acre compound to, um, to victims. And basically they, they, sh- the, his victims, right. So a couple of, couple of, uh, victims of their violence. So it's, uh, it's, you know, we want to see people held accountable in court, in a criminal, in a criminal context, but this is another way of seeking accountability. So something to keep an eye on. And with that, we're going to take a quick break and then come right back uh, with Richard Signorelli. So stay tuned and we'll talk about all the criminal side of things. Well, I find myself in times of trouble. Mother Mary comes to me Speaking words of wisdom Let it be And in my eyes of darkness She's standing right in front of me Speaking words of wisdom Let it be Welcome back. I'm joined now by Richard Signorelli. Richard is a former federal prosecutor who worked in the influential and famously independent Southern District of New York. Richard, welcome to We've Got Issues. Thank you for having me. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate your time. Um, I, I will say that I I feel some small satisfaction seeing uh, MAGA idiots who stormed the Capitol face some consequences for their actions, but it is hard to escape the feeling that those who are um, truly responsible, not only for the attack on the Capitol, but the attempted coup that it was part of are at least so far escaping accountability and experts in authoritarianism all seem to agree that this apparent impunity uh, just invites, you know, future attempts to uh, subvert our democracy. You have argued that uh, Trump, Donald Trump should have already been indicted for crimes that have uh, previously been investigated even before the election, including uh, the multiple acts of obstruction of justice detailed in the Mueller report and um, the campaign finance violations related to like paying hush money to mistresses, which actually sent uh, Michael Cohen, his former like capo to prison. Um, What is your sense of why Attorney General Merrick Garland isn't, so, at least so far, using the tools uh, at his disposal to pursue uh, at least investigations into high-level former officials, including possibly Donald Trump? I, I, I can only speculate, yes. but what I think is going on here is that uh, Merrick Garland, who is an otherwise smart uh, 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 attorney, and he's being very careful, very cautious, deliberate. He is an institutionalist. Uh, and my beef with him is that this is such an extraordinary situation that it really calls for extraordinary action on his part and the part of the Department of Justice. And uh, what I mentioned in a tweet, I think uh, uh, will partly answer your question. I believe Garland is probably treating Trump more like a Nixon than the Hitler that I believe Trump really is, an existential threat uh, to our democracy. And it requires, I believe, very aggressive, very timely action 
for a really good reason. Every day, Trump and his accomplices and his enablers in right-wing media and his deranged supporters are doing damage to our democracy, perhaps permanent. And to a certain extent, they seem to be getting stronger. And a factor in the exercise of prosecutorial discretion is whether the target of an investigation is still doing harm or committing criminal acts. And here, I believe that Trump is one of the most dangerous, if not the most dangerous person in this country. And he remains uncharged for any past crimes, as well as his ongoing offenses against our democracy. So I do believe uh, Attorney General Garland should be acting aggressively and in a timely manner and should pursue Trump to the fullest extent for both his past crimes that are fully investigated, Mueller obstruction, the Stormy Daniels related campaign finance fraud, for example, uh, as well as uh, in connection with the ongoing probes related to the January 6th insurrection and everything that was leading up to January 6th. Yes. Yeah, I do too. Um, let me ask you this. And I, obviously I'm asking you to speculate and not, um, <clears throat> I know that you can't get into Attorney General Merrick Garland's head, but it seems to me that a lot of people in your profession were really shocked by the degree to which Trump politicized the Department of Justice. Um, do you have the sense that there is a that there is an overcompensation going on that that in Garland's um, desire to return norms of independence to the Department of Justice, he is being excessively cautious, and in a sense. Is that not another way of politicizing the Department of Justice? I, I believe it is. And I believe that uh, he does want to maintain the independence of the Department of Justice. But I would s strongly argue that it is not political to prosecute someone who has committed very serious crimes in an ongoing fashion that jeopardizes our way of life and our democracy. And indeed, if you really want to be an institutionalist, uh, one should abide by the principles that no man is above the law, no person is above the law, and every person should be held accountable for uh, criminal offenses that that person has committed. And exhibit A would be Donald J. Trump. And so it, it should not be political to prosecute any former elected official, including a former president, if there is sufficient evidence to warrant a prosecution. And I believe uh, that there is here on multiple fronts. So I, I, I think Garland is in part being careful for political reasons, but I think he's making a, 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 a very significant mistake. Yeah. There are those uh, 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 out there in my profession and otherwise who do believe Garland is uh, privately or confidentially investigating Trump in an active way. Uh, I hope they're correct, but I've seen no evidence um, that he is actively investigating Trump and his high-level accomplices uh, uh, for any of Trump's crimes, including but not limited to the January 6th insurrection. Yeah, and I, I agree. Will... I agree with that. Look, I mean, if I get that they might be able to run a tight ship, not be a super leaky, but uh, if he were actively investigating, I, I believe we would have heard at least we would have had some indication from reporters. I mean, you know, the Washington Post would have gotten something. Here's... Uh, it just seems unlikely that that he could do that completely covertly. And uh, let me also just editorialize really quickly. I don't understand why they haven't appointed a, uh, a special um, counsel to do this. If he, if, if he is so concerned about appearing 
political. If that is the big thing, um, then appoint a, you know, get a veteran Republican uh, prosecutor. I know Robert Mueller was a Republican. That didn't stop attacks on his investigation, but it at least blunts the, the, uh, <clears throat> the suggestion that it is a politicized investigation. Well, you know, I'm not necessarily against Garland just simply doing uh, his job. Yeah. Um, And I also see the arguments in favor of a special counsel. I would prefer that the Department of Justice would would just do its job in a very timely, very aggressive manner, because I think the tenor of our times uh, requires that. And for those who think he is actively investigating and targeting Trump. Um, uh, again, I hope they're correct, but I will point out two things that we would probably know about right now if he was in fact doing that. Number one, these investigations do not take place in a closed room and in a vacuum. Right. For example, the issuance of grand jury subpoenas would inevitably leak out, especially in a case like this. Number two, this is a standard operating procedure to charge accomplices, co-conspirators, people a little lower down the food chain in order to see if they will cooperate against individuals such as Trump that are at the top of the conspiracy. I've seen no evidence of that happening yet. And I do believe there are targets out there that should be charged um, that have uh, that are at a high level uh, situation with Trump, and m- much can be gained from those individuals being charged and being given an incentive to cooperate in a prosecution against Donald Trump for the insurrection, at the very least. Not to mention uh, the other alleged criminal offenses that he's committed. Yes, absolutely, and and everything you just described has happened in New York with the investigation into potential financial crimes involving the Trump organization. We know that there's a grand jury. We know that they've issued subpoenas. They have um, gone after lower level people within the Trump organization in an attempt to pressure them to cooperate, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, There has been a lot of news about um, the coup plot. I, you know, I think we should all call it a coup plot because that's very clear what clearly what it was. Uh, in recent weeks, and I want to go over some of this, we had already known about the uh, so-called Eastman memo uh, by John Eastman, this this right-wing lawyer. It has been described as an outline for a coup uh, involving Mike Pence refusing to certify uh, electors from from states that went for, for Joe Biden. Then a week ago, we learned from the House Select Committee investigating the events Surrounding January 6th, that then Chief of Staff Mark Meadows turned over a PowerPoint presentation laying out another route to overturn the results of the election by declaring a national security event, uh, which is very Hitler-like, by the way. Let's be very clear. Um, We don't know exactly who saw the presentation or how close it was to being implemented, but we do know that Trump was pressuring Mike Pence to follow the plan outlined by Eastman. Um, Let me also add that there were these two pipe bombs outside the RNC and DNC that did not go off. So when you're talking about national security, emergencies, and that kind of thing, that, you know, you hate to be too conspiratorial, but who knows? Then on Tuesday, Representative Jamie Raskin uh, he revealed that a Republican member of Congress texted Meadows on not January 4th, November 4th, November 4th. Guys, folks, this is the day after the election. Millions of ballots had yet to be counted, right? This is before anything has been certified. This is during the election. And um, he suggested he or she, we don't know who, who this is, he or she suggested, and I quote, aggressive strategy, which he or she described like this. Again, I quote, why can't the states of Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and other Republican-controlled state houses declare this is BS and just send their own electors to vote and have it go to the Supreme Court? 
Oof. First, uh, Richard, do you sense that there is a movement go on, going on here after like many months of seeming inaction? Are, do you think prosecutions are more likely today after the revolu- revelations of the last couple of weeks than they were like a few weeks ago? Ab- absolutely. And, and I want to make myself clear about where I stand with the attorney general. Uh, I do believe <laughs> I do believe he will act. Um, and I would just like him to take action sooner rather than later and in the most comprehensive, aggressive form uh, that he can, uh, given uh, the crimes that have been committed. But the more evidence that's been revealed by the January 6th committee, the more likely it is that there will be prosecutions and hopefully, you know, soon before more damage uh, is done. And I believe there's a method uh, uh, that the January 6th committee is clearly doing by reading these messages and and having these hearings and with Liz Cheney, for example, tracking the elements of uh, one of the obstruction statutes, they are signaling to the Department of Justice and Merrick Garland in particular that there are crimes here that cry out for accountability. Um, uh, Older uh, viewers will recall uh, that during the Watergate uh, situation, there were both parallel House hearings along with Department of Justice, active investigations and prosecutions of high-level participants in the Watergate scandal. The same should take place here There should be these parallel investigations that are very active of high-level participants. And may I just give one example of how this could work in practice. If Jeffrey Clark, for example, if there was sufficient evidence to warrant his prosecution, only the Department of Justice can charge Jeffrey Clark with alleged federal offenses that he may have committed. If they do bring such a case, which they can do by criminal complaint or indictment uh, after a grand jury presentation, this would give him an incentive to consider cooperating uh, in their case, including against the president. Jeffrey Clark reportedly had numerous direct communications with Donald Trump Uh, in the days leading up to the January 6th insurrection. He may have a great deal of information to trade for leniency in a criminal case, and he may have an incentive to do so. But if he's not charged, his incentive is to plead the Fifth Amendment um, and not cooperate. Um, And so that's an example where parallel investigations can really work to the benefit of literally saving our democracy. Jeffrey Clark, for listeners who haven't been following this that closely, was a former Department of Justice official who was apparently placed in a position specifically uh, to uh, assist in overturning the election. It's really uh, blatant, blatant stuff. You mentioned, uh, let's, let's listen to that clip. You mentioned um, Liz Cheney talking about a potential setting up potentially a charge against Donald Trump. I, I want to just um, play the clip briefly and get your reaction. Donald Trump Jr. texted again and again, urging action by the president. Quote, we need an Oval Office address. He has to lead now. It has gone too far and gotten out of hand, end quote. But hours passed without necessary action by the president. These non-privileged texts are further evidence of President Trump's supreme dereliction of duty during those 187 minutes. And Mr. Meadows' testimony will bear on another key question before this committee. Did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceedings to count electoral votes. 
Mark Meadows' testimony is necessary to inform our legislative judgments. Yet he has refused to give any testimony at all. Even regarding non-privileged topics, he is in contempt of Congress. Richard, what is the significance here? Why is that language important? Liz Cheney is explicitly sending a message to the Department of Justice to consider an obstruction charge, among other things, against Donald Trump. That is the significance of what she did. What she did was very deliberate. She literally tracked the elements of the applicable obstruction uh, statute. And in this respect, she's echoing some of the concerns that Adam Schiff has repeatedly uh, expressed uh, about his concern of Department of Justice uh, inaction, uh, as well as the repeated uh, concerns that uh, uh, constitutional law professor uh, Tribe, uh, uh, who is close to Merrick Garland, he has also expressed these concerns about uh, 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 inaction to date by the Department of Justice. So I think things are moving in the right direction. I think Merrick Garland will be acting uh, 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 sooner rather than later. At least I hope he does. We really do need him to act, and he can start by charging the accomplices and then uh, and hopefully flip one or more of them uh, to provide evidence against, uh, let's face reality, the ringleader of the entire seditious conspiracy uh, is Donald Trump. Yeah. And he is the ultimate target. He remains the most dangerous, uncharged person in this country. And he needs to be held accountable for what he has done in plain view. Um, and you don't have to be a lawyer or a former prosecutor or a genius to see what he has done in plain view he tried to steal an election. He tried to stay in power illegally. He is damaging our democracy every day. There is evidence to show this. What more is needed to pursue an active criminal investigation and prosecution of Donald Trump and his high-level accomplices than what we already know in the public record not to mention everything else that the January 6th committee is obtaining, which they can easily and probably are sharing with the Department of Justice on an ongoing basis. At least I hope they are. Yes, I, I, uh, I you know, you have to think that they are. And, um, you know, the, the, the thing is, you know, there's a legal side and there is a political side here. And I think that there's, a pretty good likelihood that if uh, if Garland moves, he, he he might wait to do so until after the committee holds high profile public hearings, which they say that they're going to do early next year, and uh, wait for that to uh, to take place so that you know we get more uh, more drama in the news, more um, you know public evidence is presented about what was going on, and also. Additional, you know, the committee has said that they're going to name names with these lawmakers who have had some sort of involvement in January 6th, uh, lawmakers and staff, according to committee chair um, Benny Johnson this week. So um, there is also lower hanging fruit, I should just say, for listeners who have not been following all of this. Uh, Albert Allshuler, he's a law professor at the University of Chicago, or he may be retired, I don't know. He wrote, Last week, I think that um, that the simplest and most straightforward way of charging Trump and other high-level officials within the White House for the insurrection at the Capitol itself is that um, by violating their legal duty to do what they could to end the unlawful occupation, they became an accomplice to that crime. So that would be uh, that would allow them to potentially charge them with uh, being an accomplice to unlawfully entering and remaining in restricted buildings or grounds, and which is usually a misdemeanor, but there was violence involved. So 
Um, let me ask you, and I, I'm taking more of your time than I asked you for, so I'm sorry about that. Um, what about the reported criminal probe in Georgia, where Trump made multiple efforts to uh, get local election officials, Republican election officials, to, quote, find missing votes that would give him a, a purported win in that state? I, I think Trump um, and uh, his accomplices face real criminal exposure in Georgia. Um, and it's important to keep in mind that election fraud in any state is a violation of not only state law, but federal law. Yes. So Trump and his accomplices should be the active targets of a, both a federal and a state criminal investigation regarding the, the Georgia situation. Um, and don't think for a second that Georgia is the only state where Trump allegedly tried to commit election fraud. Uh, uh, common sense should tell all of us that there are other swing states, closely decided states, where Trump um, uh, and his uh, 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 alleged co-conspirators were doing the same thing. And so that needs to be looked at very closely, and I'm hopeful that something will be happening in that regard. Well, so I agree with you that there was no doubt similar um, similar efforts going on in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, perhaps elsewhere. Um, but as far as I, I believe, as far as we know, as far as reports have gone, uh, only in Georgia is there a criminal probe underway. So we're going to all have to watch how that progresses. Richard Signorelli, I, I believe we are out of time. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Um, and I really appreciate um, uh, the opportunity to express my, my opinions on these subjects. Thanks so much. Folks, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and then come right back with uh, Heather Digby. Pardon. Stay tuned. Get up, pack it in, let me begin. I came to win, battle me, that's a sin. I won't ever slack up, punk it better back up. Try and play the role and you're the whole crew will act up. Get up, stand up, come on, throw your hands up. If you got the feeling, jump up, touch the ceiling. Monks, let's up, punk up. Someone's fucking jump, yeah, I'll bust them in the eye. And then I'll take the punks out, feeling. Fuck it, amps in a junk, and I got more bombs in this cop set of junkie. Donut shop, sure enough, I got props from the kids on the hill with my mom and my pops. I came to get down, I came to get down. Welcome back. I am still Joshua Holland, and I'm always happy to welcome my next guest, who is one of our faves around here. Let's be honest about it. Heather Parton is a columnist for Salon, and she is uh, also the OG blogger known as Digby, where she uh, she's writing at Hullabaloo. Uh, Heather, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Thank you for taking the time. Um so we have some annoying news this week, of course, with um, President of America, Joe Manchin, King of America, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, yet again rejecting um, the Build Back Better Act. Uh, specifically, he's saying that the child, this guy, just one pain in the ass after the other. It's amazing, this guy. Um, Joe Manchin is insisting that the child tax credit, which has dramatically reduced child poverty, be taken out of it unless its full 10-year cost is paid for, even though the benefit is only going to extend through the end of 2022. So the, so the, um, the package does not provide the child tax credit for 10 years. Uh, and Biden is on record saying that they, if they're going to extend it, they have to pay for it, but that's not good enough for Manchin. Um, I don't know. What is there to say about this guy at this point? Did we get just completely rolled? Because a lot of people on our side, on the progressive side of the Democratic coalition, were saying that if we, uh, if the House passed the Republican 
bipartisan the, the bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill that would take pressure off of people like Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, the the senator from uh, Arizona, to support the more expansive um, Build Back Better bill. Did we get rolled? I don't know yet, um, but certainly you know anybody who naively believed for sure that it was going to be smooth sailing just because the house passed that bill was pro- was not paying attention. I mean, it was yeah. clear that this was going to be an absolute hard, desperate slog to get to the end of this. And, you know, I think you have to go back to something that happened even before that, that is sort of at the, at the base of what's going on here. And that is actually more Kirsten cinema than Joe Manchin, although he went along with it too. And that was the absolute, you know, roadblock to raising taxes on the wealthy, to, to digging into those Bush, to those uh, Trump tax cuts and using that money to pay for things. Once they did that, once they said, absolutely not, we refuse to raise those taxes, the rest of the bill came into, you know, was threatened because the whole idea being, you know, we're going to pay for this. I mean, you and I both know, and probably most of the people who are listening, recognizes that this, you know, it's all paid for business is is BS, right? I mean, (laughs) you know, we don't need to do that. It's not necessary. It's not the way that the government should be run. But nonetheless, it's a political, you know, trope that has to be recognized and respected, apparently. Once they did that, once they and 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 for its own sake, the the raising of those taxes on the wealthy simply, you know, just because it needs to be done for reasons of equity, for reasons of, of you know, uh, of equality in our in our country and and for economic purposes, it's important to do that. But it was also important in this particular bill that they were able to sell it as being paid for and that, you know, they could do all that. Once that happened, they started whittling away at the bill. And, you know, there's no end to it once you start that. Right. I mean, you end up and yeah. now they, they landed on this moment where they're saying, oh, well, we're not this is a gimmick that they're only funding the bill for five years or whatever, when really it should be 10 years. I don't know why. Why not say it has to be funded for 100 years? I, I don't know why they picked 10 years, because the concept behind it is that, you know, you can't if you don't fund these things out into infinity, then we're not going to vote for it because it might break the budget somewhere down the road. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that's that's a ridiculous thing. But that's that's you know. So what you come down, what what we end up with here is, of course, these are excuses. This is yeah. Joe Manchin doesn't want to pay for the child tax credit, which he's made clear because he just doesn't. He thinks that it promotes a you know a, a dependency. Dependency. State. Yeah. You know, and and he's one of those guys. So that's where well, we're he's at. Also, he's also objecting about it being means. He he wants it to be means tested, even though it already is means tested. Right? right. It already fades out at a certain income level. It's it's just bullshit. I mean, this guy's just full of shit. And he says that he supports the child tax credit, and Kirsten Cinema ran on um uh, uh, ran against the the Trump tax cuts that she is now mm-hmm. insisting must remain in place. So these two bad actors are causing so much damage and you see a real decline in um in Joe Biden's standing in part as a result of this and it, you know we're headed towards a situation I think where uh, this is a very possible scenario certainly not the only scenario, but where Democrats in two years pass a massive COVID relief bill, pass a huge, you know, everything is relative, huge, the biggest infrastructure bill in the history of this country, a lot of good spending, a lot of good projects, and everybody is pissed off at them as a, yeah. a, 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 mm-hmm. afterwards, you know? So, like, that is a, a very real possibility. Um, so, the Washington Post reported this week that Senate Democrats are, quote, scrambling to find a way to pass in the coming week's voting rights legislation. Uh, so, amid increasing pressure to counter Republican changes to election laws, and as progress on the domestic policy bill that they have made their top legislative priority for months has stalled. So um, what they're saying, supposedly uh, Chuck Schumer had wanted to pass Build Back Better this year. 
Um, now it seems, and this is all very fluid, it seems like they are abandoning that goal and instead are going to refocus on voting rights re- legislation. But Politico reports that Kirsten Cinema, while she supports, quote, supports the elections reform bill the Democrats are considering a year end push to pass, she doesn't support a shortcut around the filibuster to get it done. And unlike, so Joe Manchin had said, I believe I could get 10 Republicans to support voting rights, which has got to be the stupidest thing anybody has said in a very, very long time. But um, so you could say, oh, maybe he's painted himself in a corner because he will fail to get those 10 and then maybe he'll be like, oh, I tried. But she hasn't even said that, you know, I don't know. Let me let me ask you this. it's it's this is all extremely frustrating. I am tired of the drama. What about the press? Like they keep asking these two, "Oh, do you support yeah. killing the filibuster?" You see, you keep asking the same fucking question over and over and over again. You know what? You're going to get the same answer, and you just entrench them further in their position. You know, I would like to see reporters say, "Why is it okay to watch Republicans?" issue these wildly gerrymandered maps why is it okay for republicans to change election laws to allow um to give legislatures red state legislatures the power to overturn the popular will in their states why is this okay why is this important more important than than the the fill why is the filibuster more important than those things why are you willing to let democracy be trampled in the name of defending the filibuster Uh, well i agree with you completely i mean the the press should be asking questions in that way they should be working (laughs) much harder than they do to kind of you know change up the narratives and to to you know try and get these people i mean what you have with mansion and cinema and they're not the only ones but they're the particular ones in this in this particular this moment um you know they're looking for attention. I mean, clearly, I mean, cinema does it in a very interesting way because she sort of issues the press. She doesn't talk directly to them. She's a very mysterious person, but it's the same thing, right? I mean, like this filibuster thing with the voting rights. She she came out and said this. I think it was on what was it on Wednesday or Tuesday. Um, and you know, so she gets a lot of press, and I'm sure it gets you know she gets attention back home, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and Manchin, of course, he's in, he he doesn't live unless he's in front of a camera these days. Yes. So yes. you know, so the 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 fact that they get this attention and they're they're lobbed these 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 questions that make it easy for them to sort of take these positions and appear to be mavericks and independent and all that. That's that's a huge part of the problem. It's also a huge part of the problem that the press, for whatever reason, I mean, I guess it was when Afghanistan happened. They jumped on the idea that, you know, Joe Biden's a big failure. He's terrible. And, you know, this that that narrative has been rolling ever since then. And it had it peaks and, you know, it, it, it waxes and wanes, but it generally stays at the top. And I saw this week, like CNN had a new poll out on B- Biden's approval rating, which is, you know, extremely important, I think, for getting this thing passed and also for 2022. I mean, you know, the history suggests that the presidential approval rating has a has a uh, you know, an impact on that. Um, but the, the CNN reported their new polling, which was 49 approval, 51 disapproval. Well, I mean, you know, what else is new, right? Polarized country, 50-50, essentially. They didn't even sell their own poll. They sold. They said, well, that doesn't really count. We, we count the average, which I've never heard a network do before. <laughs> never. They always tout their own poll. But this somehow for t- yesterday, uh, they're saying, well, no, you know, we want to um, – you know, we, we want to look at the average and that brought him down to like 45 percent or whatever. And then just went through the the uh, the the poll and, you know, looked at the crosstab saying, you know, 
well, you know, he's really hurting in this, this, this and way. And it was silly things like, you know, they asked people, you know, have you had any trouble buying goods in the last week and in, in the last two weeks? People go, oh, yeah, I couldn't find, you know, the, the same brand of paper towels or whatever. You know, I mean, that kind of thing. And, and that really showed that Joe Biden's in big trouble. Well, that whole thing, you know, you take that narrative and you combine it with mansion and cinema being these two divas who are constantly at the top of the heap that puts them in control it makes them the people who are who are you know we know they have huge influence we know that you can't pass things without you know everybody on board but nonetheless it puts them in control and by the way it lets every republican off the hook they they are just i don't has anybody asked any republicans about build back better and what they hate about it i mean what do you have against childcare they don't ask them that um so the press i think has had a, a an enormous impact on this and I think it's getting worse, which is really kind of terrifying because, you know, we're in a pretty precarious position here with COVID and with the assault on democracy and yes. voting rights and all of this. I mean, this is this is major stuff. This, this is, you know, once in a generation set of crises coming up at the same moment. And uh, I'm not seeing the press step up. I, I'm, I'm really kind of disappointed because I thought that Trump, the experience of Trump had kind of, I don't know, shaken their their preferred, you know, approach to these things and had made them kind of take a, take another look. But I, I'm see, sensing that it isn't. I mean, they still go after Trump, but, you know, that's only part of the story. In fact, it's kind of an irrelevant part of the story when we're talking about what about what we're talking about now yeah. with, the, with this legislation. Uh, they're really obsessed with um, Biden's low approval rating. And I, I should point out <clears throat> that, first of all, you know, I don't it was it's interesting to contrast the discussion of presidential approval ratings under Biden and under Trump because Biden's net approval rating that is the share of the of, of respondents who say that they approve of the, his presidency minus the share that say that they disapprove it is in negative territory uh, today in 538's average of the polls Biden is down uh, seven points, right? So negative seven points, 43 approve, 50% disapprove. Yeah, it's not good. At this point in Trump's presidency, he was down by 20.4 points. So there was a 13, he was 13 points less popular. He has been, Biden has been more popular than Trump by significant, similar significant margin by 10 points or so every single day of his presidency, yeah. right? When when Trump was at minus 20, what were the stories? It was about Trump supporters sticking with him. It became a cliche, right? Yes. We would joke about Trump supporters still support Trump and we're going to go to a, a diner in, you know, rural Alabama and talk to some freaking Trump supporters who, <laughs> despite his unpopularity, uh, still support him. And now it is just like everybody hates Joe Biden. Now, this is, I, I must say, this is a critique. We, like people like you and I, we've been critiquing the media, the mainstream press for the way it covers politics for a very, very long time now, right? I mean, yeah. we're, I mean, don't you bore yourself sometimes. I, I certainly oh, I do. Bore, of myself, course. bore myself sometimes. You're just kidding Jesus, me. <laughs> saying a shift for 17 years. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So let me ask you a question. So this this is recently, and this was two two weeks ago. I didn't talk about it last week, but it's it's the uh, the the fallout has continued to happen. So Dana Milbank, who is you know a very conventional wisdom guy columnist for the Washington Post. He wrote this piece. Um, it's titled, and listeners should check it out, The Media Treats Biden as Badly as or Worse Than Trump. Here's proof. And he sampled a bunch of headlines and he came up with this analysis. He looked at uh, an, an analysis of 200,000 news articles from 65 websites. And he found that... Um, to quote, my colleagues in the media are serving as accessories to the murder of democracy. Uh, and what's really wild about this, they, he compared, you know, the positive and negative news coverage of, of Trump. And um, what's wild is that, you know, he, 
Biden has been getting worse coverage than Trump did when Trump was actively trying to overturn the election. So I guess here's my question about all of this. And first of all, you've seen the backlash to Milbank's column, right? Yep. Why are reporters so defensive to this kind of criticism as opposed to the right, which constantly tells them that they're like making shit up because they are (laughs) secretly, you're right, fake news secretly in the tank for Democrats and they invent stories. That they seem to, I don't know, either take for granted or internalize in, in some cases. But if you come at them from either a collegial perspective like Dana Milbank, others have as well, or certainly from the left, they are like, they circle the wagons. What, what accounts for that? Uh, you know, it's it, it, this has always confounded me, and it's even more shocking now. Um, I mean, this goes back again, you know, as you previously mentioned, <laughs> you know, we're sitting there going, have we been talking about, yeah. we have to talk about this again. Um, but the truth is, yeah, we do. And and the the difference, and it, this happened, you know, when people like us were first sort of, sort of coming up, writers and bloggers and things like that, but in the in the last decade, and we're kind of providing a countervailing um, critique of the media coming from the other direction, right? Because the right had been critiquing them as the liberal media for decades at that point. And that was a conscious strategy. That was something that was cooked up, you know, back in the 70s. They realized that this was a way for them to, you know, shape the narratives. And and the the right was very successful at doing that. And it, it showed. I mean, you saw it in coverage going forward that the, the media was much more gun shy about going after the right wing than it was the left wing. And certainly within the, you know, the sort of center left, center right um, politics of Washington, D.C., they were far more, um, you know, they were they were far easier on the center right. And in fact, would go around proclaiming over and over again, this is a center right country. Right. So, you know, this this was something they sort of internalized. And when when the left or, you know, people, you know, outside of that sort of paradigm started critiquing them, you know, for both sides, journalism and the the way that they were doing it, um, they got very upset. Well, I sort of thought that had been wrung out of them from, you know, during the, the Trump years, if nothing else, where they kind of saw maybe the error of their ways and how that had. There seemed uh, to be some acknowledgement. Yeah. And and the yeah. idea that they had sort of perpetuated an environment that allowed somebody like Donald Trump to come along and that, you know, there needed to be an adjustment or, as they're calling it these days, a reckoning. Um, well, that was wrong. I mean, in fact, the only reckoning that's been happening, you know, it recently was a reckoning over the steel dossier as if that was some big thing. And they're all walking around with hair shirts and self-flagellating over that story, which I don't recall being some, you know, big thing that was definitive. Everybody always said, well, it's, you know, raw data and we don't know what it is, but, you know, here, here you go. And that was not the crux of the Russia investigation story. But nonetheless, now they're going around, you know, having a big reckoning over that. Whereas, you know, there's never been any reckoning over the but her emails thing for over Hillary Clinton or, or, you know, the way that they that they handled her campaign in 2016. And now we're seeing this happening again. And even when it's this and this getting back to your point, even when it's coming from someone like Dana Milbank, or people like Barton Gelman writing in the Atlantic. I mean, this has been coming from different directions here um, than it's ever been before. People within, you know, the Brotherhood uh, are actually speaking out, and and the the backlash, the furious backlash. I mean, you saw it on Twitter. People like Maggie Haberman. Of course, she's very defensive anyway, generally. Yeah, yeah. But but there are a bunch of them, and they were all going, "That's not true. You know, this is ridiculous. What's Dana Milbank talking about?" And, and, you know, this, it just sort of crystallized once again, for me anyway, that this problem, it is very, very, very deep. It is, it is a a serious part of what's happening to our democracy that we don't have. I mean, you have this, this very, very powerful right-wing machine now, which now includes social media and, you know, all the, all the print media they've always had, and needless to say, Fox News and two other networks, OAN and, and Newsmax, that are pumping right-wing propaganda into people. And we've seen the result of that with COVID. 
I mean, you see yes. it with COVID. I mean, COVID has taken out, you know, vast numbers of right wingers because of the misinformation they're being fed. Um, and there's nothing like that on the left. You have this other thing. And it's not even I mean, it's not left by any means. And it's not partisan. The the mainstream media is just it's like this little, you know, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's an insular institution that uh, simply is in, in, in unable to see itself for what it's for what it's done and what it's doing. It does, it, it is incapable of self-reflection um, because when anybody does it, they go, they go crazy and it start defending themselves. So, you know, yeah. we're, this is a very dangerous situation because you have one thing that is, you know, just blatantly propagandistic. And you've got this other thing, which is kind of just operating it on its own logic that isn't really, um, applying itself to the, to the reality that we're trying to live in here. Uh, so it's a really, really deep problem. And when, as you say, we've been following this for a long time, and I kind of had hopes that maybe it was going to improve after, you know, I don't know, an insurrection. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm, I'm falling back into my old cynical, uh, cynical ways here and sort of well, assuming I mean, it's I'll, not. I'll tell you this, though. I, I am... You know, I tend to optimism I, for reasons that I don't really understand. I, I <laughs> tend to try to find a, a silver, a silver lining. Oh, you Pollyanna. Yeah. And <laughs> I will just say this, like the fact that it's Bart Gelman and, you know, Dana Milbank saying this stuff and not dirty hippies like us, uh, Margaret Sullivan, um, others in, in that in that orbit at least it's it's getting into the conversation, right? At least you're seeing that true that this is part of the you know media is is we we are great at navel gazing. So there's media loves to think about media, and at a minimum, and I'm not saying that this is a great reason to celebrate or a great triumph, but at a minimum, um, they're hearing it, and they're hearing it from people within their inner circle within that cloistered kind of community. So I don't know, it's not, not necessarily so great. I also worry, and this is linking these two things that we're talking about. I just want to talk to you briefly about 2022. Um, Things are looking extremely bleak for 2022, but we're a year out. And I think a lot can change. I think that, you know, that we're about to get it looks like our ass is kicked by this new variant of COVID. But, uh, you know, it's, it's entire the, the, the COVID comes in waves. Uh, we are continuing to vaccinate people. New medication is coming down the pike that uh, appears to be very effective in averting the worst illness, keeping people out of hospitals and morgues. So that may be a, a, a bleak situation that is getting better. The economy is booming. We keep hearing a lot about inflation, but certainly people at the bottom are uh, of the income ladder are doing really well, much better than inflation. There's a lot of labor organizing. Um, Donald Trump is going to hit the campaign trail next year. Uh, in all likelihood, backing a lot of very fringy candidates. He's going to be very much in our consciousness in the way that he wasn't in, for example, Virginia for the gubernatorial races. I mean, it looks like the Democrats are doomed, but is that, is that something that can be averted? And, and, and is, is the doom and gloom that we hear basically from every corner? Is that, is that something that is, um, you know, likely to create a self-fulfilling prophecy. What do you think? Well, I think, you know, I mean, the odds are that it will create a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, certainly the, you know, history sort of, you know, when you look at numbers like this, that history suggests <coughs> that it's, um, you know, it's not going to end well for Democrats in 2022. They're, they seem to be, you know, pretty likely to lose the House. Um, gerrymandering isn't helping. Uh, the voting uh, assaults on on the electoral system in various states aren't helping. I mean, it it doesn't look it doesn't look too promising. But as you say, no. you know, I mean, this is a weird time. We are in a very very strange political moment, and you know, it's it's unprecedented. We we've had 
you know, wars and, and depressions and all kinds of things in the past. But this is really kind of a unique, unique time in this, this pandemic. And the, the, the Trump, you know, MAGA movement and everything, you know, and the, and the sort of threat of violence that kind of hovers over everything. It's kind of, yes. you know, there's, there's, it's, 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 un, it's unprecedented, <clears throat> I think. So I don't know that making too many predictions based upon the historical models makes a lot of sense. I think that to me, what you said about Trump being out on the trail and endorsing all these crazy candidates, that probably has it provides the best chance for Democrats to survive, frankly. I mean, we live in an era of negative partisanship. It's unpleasant. It's really, really a drag. I mean, we want to talk about Build Back Better and child care and, you know, all these things and maybe talk about, you know, re- putting America's place in the world into a, into a better position than it has been for the last, you know, half century. And, kind of, you know, a lot of things that we could be talking about that would be, that could be positive. And I'm sure they will be talking about this on the trail, but what penetrates in this particular era is negative partisanship. Sorry. It's just, I think that's where we're at. So Trump being out there and doing his thing, I think is actually helpful. And in that sense, the media is a, a sort of friendly ally without meaning to be. Because they do crave to you know, crave the, the the Donald Trump story, it is you know it's a it's something that that is you know of endless fascination. So they'll be out there covering it and the and the weirdos that he is endorsing. Um, I don't know if that will be enough to offset you know the whatever you know negative um, feelings people have toward the party in power, as they often do at times like these, especially since, you know, we're still enduring the trauma of the pandemic. And I don't know how long that hangover is going to take place. I do think that it's very possible that the economy is going, people will have, have absorbed the idea that we have a booming economy by then. And that's, you know, I think there, it's, it's a good, it takes a while for people to kind of, kind of absorb that. It's been my experience that when you have a recession or, some kind of a problem in the economy, it takes a good year before people understand that it's over, right? I mean, yeah, it, it takes right. a while to sort of sort of get it. So in that sense, I think that it may be, it may work, the economy may be in good shape and it will kind of test the theory that it's, you know, it's the economy stupid, right? I mean, we'll see. Yeah. But, you know, but my feeling is, is that really the, the, the Trump story uh, will continue to sort of dominate. It just seems to be the way that it is and that he may be um, doing a favor for the Democrats. By yeah, being out there right. and doing his thing. And by the way, he's crazier than ever. I mean, if you read his statements that are coming out, he puts, you know, he doesn't have Twitter anymore. So he puts out these statements and he sends them out to all his people. And the obsession with the 2020 election is, is he's completely bonkers. You know, he's he's totally bonkers. He's out of his mind. So if and that Republicans, can, a lot of Republicans are like, God, man, we wish this guy would shut the Give it up. a rest, dude. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, it's you're like, even getting that from them. And they're going to want to run the typical, you know, fear mongering campaign against uh, Democrats. There'll be, you know, migrant caravans and all of that. Yeah. And um, they don't want to talk about 2020. Uh, they, they don't want to talk about. Uh, conspiracy theories that uh, can alienate college-educated folks in the suburbs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, there's just a obviously if the election happened today, you know, oh, Democrats forget, you forget it, bloodbath, and, <laughs> and it's very likely that that is yeah. what is going to happen, especially because of gerrymandering. Um, but I just need to stress that so much can happen between now and then, and. Um, we our previous guest was pretty confident and you know i mean more confident than i am probably that we're going to see prosecutions but at least uh for the for the insurrection and the coup uh attempted coup at a minimum we're going to have public hearings yeah. from by the um the the, the january 6 select committee which are going to be i think pretty dramatic and get a lot of attention and that's going to go on during next year an election year and we'll see what happens well they're not Either going way. to be foreclosed by the by the way that the impeachments were so i'm kind of hopeful that they'll be a little bit more dramatic and have a little more staying power than those did yeah and it seems like liz cheney is like bringing all hey. of that all of that good republican messaging <laughs> <Exactly>. skills <laughs> hey thank <laughs> you liz you know not teaching. my favorite but you know good no, for not you. my favorite either what a, what, what a horrible person but at least uh at least you know she's on our side on this one <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so <there you> <laughs> hey heather 
I want to thank you so much for taking the time. We are out of time, but uh, thanks so much. I always enjoy uh, processing events. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'd also like to thank Richard Senior Rally and David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Raw Story and Alternet for supporting the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall, H-O-L. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Almost wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe there's some places where you won't find it. But I would, of course, also like to thank all of you fine and discerning people for tuning in. Have a terrific week. Oh,